Welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we have Lauren Windle and Barry Woodward, and we're looking at the issue of addiction. So I was about 13 when I started drinking and uh, I grew up in London and there's a real culture of, of heavy drinking in teenagers, a lot of teenagers, not all. Um, so it was, it was just sort of accepted as a par for the course. You, you drink too much, you desperately steal alcohol from your family or you, know, you try and convince the oldest, tallest looking person to go to an off-license to buy you something. You, none of that felt abnormal to me. Um, so yeah, I just I just carried on sort of drinking in parks and, and being a bit of a reckless teenager. And then you went off to university. Yes, off to university. Continued drinking. Drinking very heavily through university actually, sort of embracing that party lifestyle. But again, you know, if you have a an issue with drinking, university is the perfect place to hide in plain sight because not only, I think it's only recently that it's come up in conversation how unhealthy that is, but every sort of, you know, freshers week settling in activity revolves around alcohol. Yes. So so that was it. I was I was very much at home embracing that element of university life. And then on top of that, um, you've started taking drugs. Now, mm. tell us, what prompted you to take drugs? Yeah, I resisted for quite a while. Um, so I started taking drugs. I'd just finished university, I was 22. And a lot of people who were going to dabble with drugs had already done so at university. And I think I was aware that I had a sort of downward spiral tendency to really get invested in things that I shouldn't. So I. I did resist for a long time, but then I got into the hospitality industry. I was working sort of running events for restaurants and, and things like that. And actually there's a real, and as with a lot of industries, I think there's a real work hard, play hard attitude there. So it's long hours and it's very stressful and sometimes people shout at you and, think, and then as soon as you're finished, open a glass of wine, open a bottle of wine, and then people offer you drugs really. And I waited a while before I accepted, but at this time I didn't have any faith, I wasn't plugged into a church, I didn't have really many people around me who were offering positive guidance or even questioning or holding me accountable for my decisions. And it's really hard to drink every single night and keep up with people who are taking drugs because drugs props up the drinking. So if I wanted to continue to keep up with that party, then I, I needed something extra and I just I decided to try cocaine. And what was the effect of taking that particular drug on you? Gosh, I think the, the effect, it changes over time and with the more that you take. Early on, it, it facilitated my drinking because it meant I could drink more and I loved to drink. So that, that was, a, what I perceived to be a big bonus. Also, I had this, I had this skewed idea of identity. So I had this idea of cocaine as being glamorous, as being supermodels, as being famous people, as you know, that sort of thing, as being members clubs and champagne and cocaine. And I wanted a place in that, that felt very attractive to me. Um, 
so I went for it. I think I didn't, I think I felt it gave me a place, you know, and gave me a persona that I really wanted. In actual fact, you know, for me, it wasn't just, you know, share a little bit of cocaine with a friend and then that's the night. I would buy more so I could go home and, and sit and take more on my own. And that stopped feeling quite so fabulous and yes. started feeling really quite desperate. And there is a, uh, there's another story that runs parallel to that in the sense that you weren't looking after yourself. Yeah. You'd wake up in the morning with a black eye. You didn't know where you got yeah. it from. Yeah. And tell us a bit of that side of the story. Yeah. So as well as sort of, you know, just starting the night with lots of drinks and taking drugs and then sometimes going home on my own and, and carrying on the party and feeling the sort of misery of, of that setup, there were, there were numerous incidents that just all built up to a real, a, you know, it was so clear that I was, I was getting things wrong. For example, waking up with a black eye is terrifying and not knowing how you got it, yeah. of course, you know, is terrifying. And there's, there was a time when I was in a taxi and I realized I didn't have my bank card, which is so frequent for a cocaine user because it's part of the kit that you use to, to take cocaine. So I honestly have left bank cards in so many different club toilets. You're not in your right mind. You have no idea what you're doing. You just throw them around the place. Realized I had no way of paying for this cab, so I had to run and ran and, and hid in front gardens and sort of ducked, you know, and this is at sort of 6 a.m. in the morning. And then and you, you sort of look at your life and you think, how, you know, how has a glass of wine and maybe, a, you know, sure. a quick sort of thing turned into this, turned into nosebleeds, turned into not washing properly, always being late for things, you know, and I had physical symptoms like numbness in my fingers and toes and I got spots in front of my eyes and things like that. And none of it, none of it put me off. None of it. It didn't like shake you or bring you to your senses. I you ignored all the symptoms. I started getting heart palpitations and I cut out coffee when I was taking cocaine. You know, I was convinced that if I stopped taking, if I stopped having a cup of coffee in the morning, then that would bring me back to full health. You know, there's nothing sane about that process. And I, I just... I was not willing to hear the signs to see yes. what was going on and be honest. And I, I didn't know, I think if I had been honest and, and seen that I needed to make what to me felt like an incredibly drastic change of cutting out drugs altogether, I would have been terrified. I wasn't, I wasn't in a position where I could picture a life yeah. like that. So then what, what was it that changed? Yeah. I. The, the, there are a couple of sort of rock bottom nights and the one that we've already referred to waking up with a black eye was a real eye opener for me and that was probably my last one but before that I, I had a real start when um, I had been at a restaurant with a few friends and one of them had moved to Paris to be with a boyfriend who, and we'd all gone to university together, so I knew him, it was very exciting that they were in this romantic city living together. We went to a French restaurant, and um, as was my custom, I went to pick up some drugs as soon as the meal was over, so that when we went for drinks afterwards, I would have 
the drugs that I, I felt I needed. And um, when I got back, she and, and her sister was there and another friend of mine said, oh, do you know what? It's, it's actually quite late. We've ended up eating until 9.30, 10 o'clock. Everyone's got work tomorrow. So um, we'll just call it a night here. But I had these drugs and I wanted this, uh, you know, once you've got the drugs, you take them. There's no sort of, great, I'll save those for next time. You know, that just wasn't in my mentality. So I went home and I just sat up until I was still awake at 7.30 a.m. when my alarm went off to tell me to go to work. And I had just done my, you know, last line of cocaine. So I was just completely high. And I called my boss and said, I'm, I just said outright, I'm high, I'm not coming in. And she said, okay, well, I'm gonna say that you're unwell and we're gonna speak about this at the end of the day, get some rest. And I just called my sister who had continued to go to church where I dropped out. And that was on a, so that would have been the Friday. And she came around and she moved me in with her on the Saturday. She took me to church on the Sunday. And on the Monday, she sent me into work with a pre-typed resignation letter. Yeah, sign that, hand that in. That was the instruction. That was the instruction. Yeah, so, and then she said, well, what are you gonna do now? Cause I don't think this industry is right for you. Um, and, and you need to invest in yourself. And I had just been with this friend who'd had such an amazing romantic story of Paris. And I just said, oh, I'll move to Paris. I'd never even been. But I just thought, well, that's fine. So I moved out there after one sort of recce weekend to identify somewhere to live and, and spent some time with, with my friends out there. And at first, that was great. And I, I still drank heavily and I, I didn't see that as a problem. Obviously, drinking is far more socially acceptable than class A drug taking. But it was when I found someone, well, I, I mean, I couldn't, when I first moved there, ask for drugs because I didn't speak French. But as my French got better and I met more people there, I found someone who started to bring me cocaine. And my friends from university who lived there basically said, you know, enough's enough. You've You've had this huge upset where you've left London deliberately to avoid all of this and and now we can just see you going down this mm. this terrible route again. Um, so one of them found a bilingual support group for me and said, this is where you're gonna go and you're gonna just, just talk to them and see how it goes. Um, so I turned up at that. The last time I drank was actually Easter Sunday 2014 which would have been the 20th of April that year. But on the Tuesday, I turned up at that support group meeting and I'm, at this point I wasn't Christian, but to me, this was so definitely a God thing. Because when you go to um, a support group for drug addicts, it tends to be men and they tend to be in their sort of 40s, 50s as a general um, demographic. Yes. That group, was all women in their 20s, bar one guy. And they were all about three months sober. So I related to them and what they had was just within my reach. When I got there and I heard what they had been through and where they were, I just cried. I just cried for the whole time. And they invited me towards the end to say a few words and I did and then they took me out for lunch afterwards. I remember walking to that lunch thinking, I really hope people drink wine at this lunch. They didn't, which I was very disappointed about. And I said to them, if I want to give up taking drugs, do I have to stop drinking as well? And without 
any doubt, they said yes. And for some people that may not be the case, you know, but they were so certain that my life would be better without both drugs and alcohol and didn't give me any kind of shade of grey with that. And they just said, this is what's worked for us and we really believe it will work yes. for you. And, and did you start feeling or did it um, different straight away or did it take three months? What, how long did it take? Yeah, I think I felt, I felt really fragile. Like, like I would bruise if you touched me. And the first week I spent just going to meetings, lying on the sofa and watching Disney films because I couldn't watch a film where I wasn't certain there'd be a positive outcome. I just couldn't risk the emotional turmoil of that. It's always... Ends well. Yeah, the baddie always falls off something and then the good people are free to live their lives and that's what I needed. Um, but it was my third meeting when, so the third day of my recovery, when somebody said, um, it was a whole session dedicated to discussing your higher power. And um, the support meetings that I went to weren't specifically Christian, but they do encourage a, a sort of connection with something greater than yourself. Yes. You know, not identifying yourself as the, the highest power in the world is quite important for, for how that program works. So they sort of said, well, what's, your, what's the God of your understanding? And I thought, well, you know, I had been to church as a child. I remembered a lot of the principles. I thought it was pretty much just a series of fairy stories, you know, strong man cuts his hair, giant boat, that kind of thing. But I thought, look, I'll go and I'll see. And I went to a church in Paris, uh, an American church, and I went to the front. So I would have been sort of six days sober or five days sober at this point. And they again said, you know, they say throughout the, the service, you know, if you want prayer, come up at the end. So I went up and, um, and I explained to this very kind vicar that I was five days clean of drug addiction. He said, okay, can you just wait there and brought over another couple who were amazing. And the, the woman really took me under her wing and I was invited to a, um, a women's Bible study, which was great. And I think it was the combination of the support I had in recovery and the support I had from the church. And I slowly started to feel less fragile. At first it was like, at any moment I could be about to relapse. I don't know if I'm gonna get through the next hour without drinking. And then I'd sort of get to bed and be like, okay, you've done it, that's, that's a whole day down. And you'd be counting the days like that. And then after a month or two, I kind of just turned around and said, oh, I didn't, I didn't really think about it today. And slowly it became less of a, it, it had less of a hold on me, but that took time. It did take time. Tell us about those days when you were an addict. Well, it started with me when I left school, John. I left school with no qualifications, got involved with a group of people who were experimenting, smoking cannabis, taking LSD and using amphetamines. And for me as a young person, that seemed really an exciting life to live. And I started to hang around with these guys and I started to take the same drugs they were taking. And before you knew it, we were taking heroin. And uh, I remember it was a Friday night. We're in Jackie Marshall's bedroom. She lived on a council estate in Salford. And nine of us were crammed in this little box room. We're smoking cannabis and listening to Bob Marley and the Whalers. The windows are vibrating with the baseline. We've got money in our pockets. And we're getting ready to go to Manchester, as we did every weekend, clubbing. And one of the lads came in. He says, hey, guys, 
I've got some heroin who wants some. And we all went quiet. And I remember the glimmer of curiosity in Craig's brown eyes. He was always the first to jump in. He said, I'm up for it. You be said, I'm game. And everybody in the room had their heroin. And I was the last one out of all of us. They're going, come on, Woody, it's your turn. And I remember thinking, I don't want to be the odd one out. I don't want to be the only one not to take the heroin because I want to know what it feels like. And I must say that was, I said yes, of course. So you succumbed to peer pressure. I did, absolutely. I'm not blaming my friends. No, no. Because I'm responsible for my own choices. Of but course. the pressure of my friends, because they'd all done it and the excitement of it all. And, oh, well, I don't, I don't really want to be the only one not to. And that was the worst choice I ever made in my life because then it was all downhill from there. Yeah. I became an addict, but I was once an addict. Absolutely. So tell us about the days that followed and um, how bad did it get? And Well, I met a woman who was 11 years older than me and she was going out with a drug dealer who was well known in Moss Side. And I started to go out with this girl behind this drug dealer's back for, for quite a few months really. And then it, everything changed and the drug, drug dealer found out. And we moved into a block of flats that are still there today in Moss Side called Meredith Court. And now I'm living in my side. I'm with this woman who's 11 years old, older than me. She's got a lot of contacts. And, and by this point, I'd started to, to sell cannabis, very small time, and, and, and sell a little bit of amphetamines at weekends and LSD. But when I moved into that flat, now I had a flat, a base, where people could come to buy drugs from. So they could come to my house or my flat any time of day, any time of night. So I started to make decent money. And it was when I was living in Meredith Court when I started to sell heroin. So it all started that Friday night in Jackie Marshall's bedroom. Yes. And now I'm in my side in a flat selling heroin. And obviously my, my habit grew and I, I started to commit different crimes to pay uh, for the money that I needed to, to, to source the drugs that I was addicted to. And that was my life for years. I ended up in prison, John. I, I, I went in prison. Yes. I was under 21 the first time and I got put on the hospital wing because I was a heroin addict. In those days, they gave you no treatment. They just put you on the hospital wing for a time. And then I, I came out of the hospital wing and they put me on uh, the young offenders wing. I was on there for quite a few months. And then I, I eventually got out and I just went straight back to my side, back to the drugs, back to the crime, back to the madness. Straight away? Straight away, straight away. Oh, in fact, the first day I got out of prison on that occasion, I had heroin. And, and that, was, that was the story of my life for, for quite a long time. So even though you were like in prison for a while, you still made the decision to take heroin the day you got out. Yeah, I, I, I got drugs smuggled into prison while I was in prison. But then obviously you encountered the truth. I did. Jesus Christ mm. and Jesus Christ set you free. Tell us a little bit, how did that happen? Well, I came out from one sentence, John. Uh, I'd, and another I'd been I'd done a sentence this time. I'd been in Preston Prison, and again, first day that I got out, I went and scored heroin, and, and I bought loads of amphetamines, which gives you energy, and I just wanted to celebrate getting out of prison, and I wouldn't let myself sleep. I just instead of sleeping, I just take more amphetamines, more amphetamines, more amphetamines, and nine months later, after getting out of prison, I, I, I was still awake. I hadn't slept. And, and God knows that's true. The mind has, has got a, a tremendous capacity to handle a certain amount of abuse, and the body has. So I'd been awake for nine months. I was skinny as a rake, and then right out of the blue, I started to hear voices. And I thought all the people that I knew who lived in the flats 
where I lived on the bull rings in Moss Side, in Yumi Moss Side, were shouting out the windows at me. And I was convinced that they were real. And I lived with those voices for nine years. Amphetamine psychosis, the diagnosis was. I'd been in a mental hospital for a few months as well. And then I'd split up with my girlfriend, Lisa, and I moved to the outskirts of Greater Manchester into this little flat down a cul-de-sac. I'd lived in yes. hostels. I spent a year in one hostel. I lived in host literally lived in hostels. They've been my home. But then I moved into this little flat. And Thursdays were the best day of the week for me because I cashed my benefits on a Thursday. So I went into the post office this Thursday, cashed my benefits, got my money, put my money in my pocket, gets on this bus to go into the town centre. The bus takes off, it stops at the next stop, and this guy gets on. He's got a bottle dot tattooed on his face, he's got a big fat neck and short stumpy fingers. And there was only two seats spare, one next to me and one on the other side of the bus. And this guy gets on, I'm thinking, oh, I hope he don't sit next to me. I wasn't in the mood for a conversation. Sure. You know? But he walks past that seat and he sits on the seat next to me and thinking, oh no. He said, you're all right, mate. How are you doing? I'm thinking I was doing all right till you sat down. Yes. He said, my name's John. So we got chatting and he was really friendly. I remember getting off the bus thinking that guy was all right. He had something that was different. Yeah. So that was the Thursday. The following Sunday, I was taking my dog for a walk. I had a little Jack Russell called Kim. She had a black patch on one eye, short, stumpy tail. She was really <laughs> aggressive. I'd got her from yeah. the, the dog's home in Manchester. And as I was walking past the hospital to get her to this field that I took her to every day, I bumped into this guy again. I said, mate, remember me? I was talking to you on the bus on Thursday. He said, of course I remember you. I says, where have you been? He said, church. I thought, oh no, he's a Bible basher. Yeah. He says, you can come if you want. We meet every Sunday in the hospital grounds. I said, mate, church ain't my thing. He said, okay, he went his way. I went mine the next day and taking my dog for a walk past the hospital. And now I'm looking for a church as I'm walking past, but I couldn't see a church building. He must have been having me on. No church in there. Wednesday was my first appointment with my new psychiatrist in this new area. Since moving from central Manchester to the outskirts, this was my first appointment with, the, with my new psychiatrist. His name was Dr. Samuel Yangi. He was from Nigeria. Thought nothing of that appointment. It was just normal for me to be having appointments with doctors and psychiatrists. That afternoon, taking my dog for a walk, looking for a church. No way could I see a church. Friday morning, 10 past nine. Knock on my front door. Who's that? Is that the police? Natural reaction. Of course. Yes. <laughs> Still today, I went to the front door, opened the door. It was this little woman. She said, hi, I'm your next door but one neighbour. I've come to introduce myself. My name's Dot. She said, you just moved in, haven't you? I said, yeah, a few weeks ago. Your dad's raised red cow, doesn't he? I said, yeah. He said, she said, you've not got much furniture, have you? I said, no. She said, I've just got a brand new fridge freezer. If you want my old one, you can have it for free. So... I took her for his freezer, even though I had one and sold it to my brother for 20 quid. Yes. Yeah. And then just before she left my doorstep, I said, Doc, she told me your name. Can you help me out? I said, the other day I met this guy when I was taking my dog for a walk past the hospital grounds. And he told me they went to church in the hospital grounds. And this week I've been looking for it and I can't see it. Do you know where it is? She says, oh, yeah, I go to that church. <laughs> I'll take you on Sunday if you want. I'm thinking, yeah. oh, no, I didn't want that. I'll come for you. So Sunday she comes, knocks on the door, walk up Birchall Road into the hospital grounds and she takes me into a, a prefab. It wasn't a church building. It was a house church. And they used to meet on a Sunday in this community type centre place in, in, the, in the hospital grounds. I walks in, sits on the second row from the front, Dot sits to the end, I sits next to her. Then there was a tap on my shoulder. I look round. It was the guy that I met on the bus with the bottle dot, the big fat neck and the short stumpy fingers. He said, mate, I didn't think you were interested in coming. I said, I wasn't. 
but Dot knocks on my door. This is Dot. He says, you don't need to introduce me to Dot. He says, well done, Dot, for bringing him. Yes. I'm thinking, these two have set me up. They must have planned it. And then I heard the words behind me, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I looked round and it was my Nigerian psychiatrist. <laughs> it was an elder in the church. Amazing. You couldn't make it up, could you? Uh, not at all. I'm thinking, have these guys been following me? Yeah. Remember, I wasn't well. <laughs> I was suffering from amphetamine psychosis. Yeah. Thinking, they've been following me, but that was, that was it. So then the guy gets up and he says, we believe in a God who can heal. After he spoke, he said that. If you want to be prayed for, for anything, come to the front. I thought, what have I got to lose? So I got out of my seat and I walked to the front. What can I pray you for? I'm thinking, how long have you got? So I told him, I said, I've been a heroin addict 15 years. I'm on 55 mils of methadone. I says, but the main thing I need prayer for is that I hear voices. In fact, my doctor's just sat down there. He says, okay, I'll pray with you. He put his hand on my head. I'm thinking, what's he doing touching me? I thought, I better just roll with it because I'm in his gaff. And he started to pray. And as he started to pray, John, something happened. I was shaking as he was praying. And I remember as he prayed, he kept repeating a phrase after each prayer, in the name of Jesus. Yes. And he'd pray again and he'd say that again, in the name of Jesus. And as he prayed and repeated that phrase, I was shaking. I had tears streaming down my cheeks. I had a feeling inside like there was fire being poured inside of me. I'm thinking, wow, get your hand off me head. Wow. And then he said, amen. I'm thinking, what does that mean? So I opened my eyes and he'd sat down. I walked back to my seat and something had changed. Completely. Completely. That day I was prayed for in the name of Jesus and I was changed. And I'm with you today, 24 years later, still changed. 24 years clean. So I was once an addict and now I'm clean. So from that moment, you never took another drug? Four weeks after. So I was Four on 55 mils of methadone. The next day I took 20. And then I went down five mils a week till I was on zero. I remember walking home, John, walking through the front door of my little flat, yeah. closing the door behind me and standing in the hallway. Silence. You heard no voices. First time in nine years. No voices. See, that's got to be God. Yeah, absolutely. That's got to be God. So this kind of oppression, evil, whatever, it, it just lifted. Lifted. That's it. I had an encounter with the living God. And, and you knew it had something to do with Jesus. It had to be because I'd been under doctors. I was, I'd been on medication even a lot of the time. I didn't take the medication. When you've been tormented like I was for nine years, these voices said all kinds of horrific things, swearing at me. Who do you think you are? You lucky you're there. Real oppressive things that took away my confidence. Yeah. When you've lived with that for nine years and then those voices go. Yeah. There is a God. He's got to be real. That's what it was like. And that, that, that light came on. And since then, still all these years later, that light is still on. Still on. Thank you for joining us. Two wonderful stories of life transformed. And if you're struggling with addiction, can I encourage you to reach out to family and friends and other professionals that can help you. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.
The Easter story is the most important story ever told. Although it's very sad at times, it's also the happiest story. That's because it's true. The Easter story by J. John is a simple, but not simplistic, retelling of the good news of Easter. Written for children and with beautiful illustrations, this book is a great way to share Easter this year. The Easter Story, available now from canonjjohn.com.